Well, good morning, church, uh, and it's great to be with you all again. Uh, my name is Cameron. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Canary Gardens, and it's great to be here again to continue our way through the book of Hebrews, which we are very quickly uh, nearing the end of. Now, if you were with us last week, you would know that we spent the bulk of our time in the first half of Hebrews chapter 10. And from that section, we saw some wonderful truths brought out about it. The main one being that Jesus is the greater sacrifice. He's so much greater than than the many Old Testament sacrifices that they gave, because unlike them, Jesus was an offering prepared by God, not by us. He was a single offering once for all time. And finally, he was a willing and obedient offering, not brought about in reluctance and routine like many of the Israelite offerings. But not only did we see he was a greater sacrifice, we also saw that there was a better outcome from his sacrifice. We saw that he had made us perfect, perfect forever, in fact. We saw that he'd given us a new heart because of his sacrifice, that we can walk in obedience to his commands. And finally, we reflected upon that wonderful truth that God remembers our sins no more. There are some really encouraging truths to reflect on. Now, as we come to today's passage, what we really need to remember is today's passage is really the application of our passage from last week. And actually from the last few chapters. So, so last week we spent time unpacking the theological truths, some of those rich truths that, that, it, that we already mentioned. And this week we're going to be focused on the application of those truths. What, what do we do with these things? And there's a lot in this text. And so we won't be able to cover every verse in as much detail as I would like or perhaps some of you would like. But we'll see how we go. But really the main point here. It's all going to be about drawing near to God. Because of all that Christ has done, because of all of who Christ is, we can draw near to God in assurance of faith and not shrink back and not turn to anything else. That's really the main point today. But it's going to give us three application points that it's going to focus on in the start of our text. And it's going to be based around the the words faith, hope, and love, which shouldn't be surprising. It's done that a few times throughout the book of Hebrews. And so faith, hope, and love, they're going to be our three application points. And after that, we're going to touch on the warning that this passage gives, a very strong warning. And then after that, we'll conclude with the final verses that kind of bring it all together. So that's our plan for today. But the whole time, we need to firmly keep in our mind where we've been. We need to keep in our mind last week and the weeks before all these great truths we've reflected on. Because, you know, there's some tricky stuff in this passage and I think often it can be misinterpreted when it's kind of just taken out of its context. And so we need to keep in mind what's come before. So why don't you open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, which has already been read out to us. Thanks for doing that, John. And why don't we uh, pray together? I invite you to pray for yourselves and, and me as we, as we get going. Lord, we ask that you speak now as we open your word. Father, we pray that you open our hearts and ears to your truth. Help us to discern our hearts and we pray that you may magnify Christ this morning. 
Magnify him to us so that there may be change in our hearts. And we pray that this change may not be brought about by our own fleshly efforts, but by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I just mentioned, one of the the key aspects of today's message is the assurance that we can have before Christ, the assurance that we can have as Christians. And in light of what I shared last week, I talked about how because there is no more sacrifice for sins, because we've been completely forgiven, it enables us to live openly before one another. And I guess in the spirit of that, I want to be honest with you and tell you that this topic of assurance is one that I actually find kind of difficult. You see, uh, for the first five years or so of when, of when God really changed my life at the end of year 12, I, I kind of just adopted this once saved, always saved uh, teaching. And, and I just accepted it. I didn't really question it. Uh, I hadn't really wrestled with it for myself. Uh, and it wasn't until God took me out of Australia and I lived in Poland for that year that I was confronted with this question in a whole new way. I listened to probably some unhelpful speakers who, who started to talk about losing your salvation and how it was possible for a true Christian to lose their salvation. And this caused me to go really on a spiral um, in myself, actually, um, to ask these questions. Well, what if I can lose my salvation? Or what if I'm that person? What, what if, what if, what if? And it led to a really big battle for me through doubt, for a number of years, and even to this day, it's something that I still have a temptation towards, something at times I still struggle with. And even though I resolved that question about can you lose your salvation and landed on the fact that I don't think you can, it still didn't help deal with that question of what if? What if my faith isn't enough? What if I turn away? All these kind of fears. I wonder if you can relate to any of that. But I hope as we jump into today's passage, as we look at this topic of assurance, we're able to have a a really helpful view of what it means to have assurance. So why don't we jump into the passage now and we'll immediately see our first application point. As I said, it's going to be less explanation, more application focus today. Look at verse 19 as we read this first section. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water." So you can already see in these opening couple of verses that the writer is trying to draw together his ideas from the previous few chapters, trying to get these Hebrew Christians' minds to be fixated on these wonderful truths. And notice that it's all about Christ. It's all about the things that we've been reflecting on. He first reminds the readers that we can enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Remember that in chapter 9, how, how because of Christ's blood, we're able to enter into the holiest of holies, that his blood is, is so much greater than the blood of bulls and goats. And then the second aspect there, he reminds them that they have a new and better way that is behind the curtain, showing to them, reminding them that they have a better covenant, a new covenant that is founded on better promises that enables us to enter behind the curtain into the very presence 
of God. And those wonderful verses in Matthew were reminded of when Christ dies, the curtain splits in two. The way is opened because of the death of Christ. Amazing truth. And finally, in verse 21, he highlights that we have a great high priest over the house of God. And that's been that other thread, right? From a few weeks ago, we learned all about Christ as our greater priest. He's a priest without sin, and yet he's also a priest who can, who can, who understands what it is to suffer temptation, weakness, suffering. He's a priest who offered his own body for us. A high priest who stands with his people and intercedes for his people. These are incredible truths. And the writer is bringing them all back, getting them into the minds of his reader, readers. Because of Christ and his blood, because of Christ and his sacrifice, because of Christ and his new covenant, because of Christ as the great high priest. He's lifting their vision to Christ and then he gives us that first application point. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so that's our first point. Because of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done, let us draw near with a sincere, a true heart in full assurance of faith. You see, the writer here is encouraging these Hebrews that they can come before God, that they can draw near to God through Christ. And not just draw near. It's not like they can draw near and then just feel very uncomfortable about that reality. They can draw near with full assurance, with a sincere heart, because Christ has provided the way. He is enough. You know, they don't have to consider for a moment whether they need something extra or something in addition. They don't have to think about needing to be circumcised or, or needing to obey some moral aspect of the law or, or even having to obey the Sabbath. They don't have to, to think about offering sacrifices or, or, or tithing a certain amount of money. They can just come before God on, by means of the blood of Christ because he is Sufficient. He has provided the way. These weak and feeble Hebrew Christians, because of Christ, actually have the right to draw near to God, and the writer wants them to know that. And you know, church, it doesn't matter how many times we hear this truth, it is worth reflecting on again that we can draw near to God through Christ. That, that you, sitting there at home, if you've placed your faith in him, you can draw near to the living God. And get this, because of Christ, it's not just that we can draw near, it's actually the most natural place for us to be now. Because we're in Christ, we, we come in his righteousness, we come as adopted children to a loving father. The most natural place for us to be as believers is in God's presence, before God. In fact, the Christian life should be defined by a constant and continual drawing near to God through Christ. And I think a good question to ask ourselves at this point, taking into account Christ's blood that has been paid for our sins, that we have a new and living covenant, that, that we have a high priest who intercedes and helps us, 
the good question to ask is what hinders you from drawing near to God? Now, there's many things that could be said in answer to this question. And and I guess, as always, I would encourage you to, to personally, with God, ask this question about your life. Ask him to reveal what might be hindering you in drawing near to God. You know, it could be some simple things, like it could be just that you're too busy to draw near to God. It could be that there's laziness in your life. It could be lack of priority around that area. It could be a variety of things, right? But what I want to focus on is more specifically what stops us from coming to God with, as this verse puts it, the full assurance of faith. And I want to suggest two areas quickly that I think affect us more than we probably know in coming towards God with assurance. And at the same time, I hope it will give us some clarity around what that assurance actually is. So the first thing that I think hinders us from coming before God with that full assurance of faith is our sin. Is our sin. You know, we touched on this a little bit last week, and the challenge then was to see that that we're not turning to other coverings for our sin. But here I want to emphasize how sin might be keeping us from drawing near in assurance of faith. You know, it would be a lie to suggest that we as Christians here in Canterbury Gardens do not struggle and fight sin on a daily basis. We all do that. We all struggle and fight with sin on a daily basis. In fact, I don't think there would be a single day in our life that isn't tainted with sin. That's why Christ had to come, right? But the key thing is, the challenge is, what is our response in those sinful moments? Because, you know, I don't think we have a problem drawing near to God with full assurance of faith when we feel like we're nailing the Christian life. You know, you get that quiet time that you're always trying to get, that perfect quiet time where God's word just comes alive to you. You see God's work throughout the day. The kids are acting less heathen than they, they usually do. Your marriage is going great. The sun is out. The blue sky is there. And, and things just are going great. And so you can draw near to God. But what about the days that aren't like that? What about the days where things are chaotic and nothing seems to go according to plan, where you're just trying to squeeze moments with God throughout the day, and when you catch yourself sinning, or even catch yourself in sins that you've constantly repented of, and yet they still show up, what happens then? Well, maybe some of you offer a quick prayer to God and kind of continue on with your day. Or maybe without even realizing it, you feel like you can't come straight before God. You're not worthy of it. Not after that. Perhaps you feel like you and God just need some space, some time. You know, you'll, you'll come before him tomorrow once things, have, once things have settled down. But without realizing, this keep, creates a pattern of, of not drawing near. Or we draw near with hesitancy because of the sin that we've committed. But without realizing it, we're actually buying into a lie that drawing near to God as Christians is still somehow dependent upon our performance. This is a lie. In fact, this is exactly why the Hebrew writer is writing, and he's showing that we've got it actually around the wrong way, because why did Christ come? 
What has the, the writer of Hebrews been trying to show? That he came to pay for the sins of his people, to forgive their sins. Do you know what that actually means? It means that Christ delights in the work that he came to do. Like Christ wasn't reluctant in going to the cross. He willingly went for the joy of redeeming a people for the Father. He is our high priest. In fact, his very job is to cleanse us from sin. His very job is is to delight in that work that he came to do. We need to take this truth to heart. That when you sin, rather than needing to draw away from God, rather than needing to keep your distance from him, Rather than getting consumed with self, you actually need to remember that Christ delights in doing the work he came to do. He delights in you repenting from your sin, just like the prodigal son story. He delights in repentance from sin and and coming to him. He delights in the work he came to do. Our sin is not a surprise to him. He redeemed us when we were at our worst, weak enemy sinners. That's when he redeemed us. And so when we sin, in all the temptation that there is for us to draw away, let us draw near, knowing that Christ delights in his work. Make a habit in your Christian life, when you sin, to draw near to God immediately, with full confidence, knowing that Christ has done the work. That's our response. And maybe some of you this morning need to do that. Maybe without realising you've been keeping your distance or not coming before God in the way that he calls us to. Maybe you need to stop half-heartedly coming because you feel too sinful, but to be reminded that you can have full assurance because even when we sin, our place in God is not in jeopardy. Our place before God is not in jeopardy. We stand in Christ's righteousness and we can come just as boldly, even in that. We can draw near to God. And so that's our, that's our first thing that I think hinders us, our sin. But the second thing that hinders us is putting our assurance in the wrong place. You see, one of the temptations when we read a passage like this, and it says we can, we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith, is to start looking at our faith and go, well, I don't know if I have the full assurance of faith. In, in, in fact, if I think about it, my faith feels quite small. Or you might be going through a particularly big time of suffering in your Christian life and you might have all these questions and your faith just may feel very insignificant. And without knowing it, you might actually not be coming towards God in that full assurance because you're concerned about your small faith. But do you see what's going on here? When we think like that, and I've been in this place, we are actually placing our assurance more in our faith and the amount of faith we have than in Christ. It happens in some reform circles. It happens in in Pentecostal movements sometimes where where faith actually becomes another kind of work that we kind of have to well up and, and be completely certain. But you see, the danger in both of these things is that faith becomes another work. D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says, It's not the intensity of our faith that saves, but the object of our faith. The assurance of faith that is emphasized in this passage is the assurance of knowing who Christ is, knowing that he is sufficient, knowing that he is the only way of salvation. The assurance of knowing that we can come before him and we don't need to turn to anything else. 
the assurance of knowing that even in our weak faith, even in our doubts, we can come before him in assurance, boldly knowing that Christ is enough. He has covered even that. Do you see that? Do you see the difference in that? Our assurance is centered upon Christ, not in ourselves in any way. So if you're someone who's keeping your distance from God, because you're caught in, in your weak faith, I always suggest that your assurance is too much in your faith. Refresh yourself in the truth of this passage, that even our fickle faith, because of the strength of the object of our faith, because of the strength of Christ, we can still boldly come. We can still be assured of who he is and what he's done. And so let us draw near to God in the full assurance of faith, even in our weakness. So that's our first point. But let's keep moving through this passage because we need to pick up the pace. So our second point is in verse 23. Verse 23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So, so the first point was about faith. This, this point's all about hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And, and once again, notice the emphasis that we can hold fast our hope because Christ, because God is faithful. The emphasis is on his faithfulness, not our own. Again, the writer is challenging these readers to let their hope not waver, but to keep it upon Christ. Because we know by now that there was a temptation within this church to, to put their hope in something other than Christ. To, to put their hope in, in something that was tangible, something that they could see and taste and touch. They felt like there was something extra needed, particularly in this hard time that we're going through, right? They were going through a time of uncertainty. There was persecution, suffering was increasing, so they felt like they needed something else. But the writer challenges their vision here. Christ is your only hope. Do not waver from him to anything else, because they will not hold up. What's in, what an important reminder for us today, church. If there's one thing going around in our society at the moment, it's a lack of hope. It's a lack of hope. There is so much bad news out there. And I don't know about you, but I've been getting weary of the constant arguing, the constant bad news, the, the constant division, tired of the never-ending doom and gloom. What about you? Maybe you can relate to that. Can I challenge you to think about whether you as a person, as a Christian, are still defined by hope? Or perhaps you've let the stresses and the discouragement and the constant bad news and things from the world seep into you that you've, you're not a person of hope anymore. You've forgotten that we should be the most hope-filled people because of what Christ has done. He is faithful, church. Don't lose sight of that hope. Don't run to more tangible things that you can see with your eyes. Look with the eyes of faith to Christ and know that God is faithful. Let us be a hopeful church in this challenging season that we're in. And just to be really practical, maybe you need to switch off your TV. Maybe you need to delete Facebook. Maybe you need to stop Googling things. You know, I think one of the main reasons that, that our hope disapparates or, or lessens is because of the fact that we let the world speak to us 
far more than we do let God speak to us. And before we know it, we're people who feel like we have no hope. Let us fix our eyes on Christ and be reminded that he has our hope. He is our hope. So faith, hope, and finally, love. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so here's the third encouragement, to, to, to stir one another up, to encourage one another, to not neglect meeting together as the habit of some was. You see, amongst these Hebrew Christians, there seemed to be this temptation to, to stop coming together. And, and whether that was because of the persecution they were experiencing and they felt like it was safer just to kind of have their Christian faith in private, or, or maybe it was because they were becoming sluggish or, or overly self-confident, they thought they knew the truth, they can, they can figure it out themselves. Whatever it was, these people were living dangerously because one of the main ways that we guard truth as Christians is in the body of believers. You know, I don't know if you've noticed that throughout these big warning passages in Hebrews, right around those passages, there's always an encouragement around the church community, functioning like the church community, rebuking, encouraging, exhorting. You know, in this context, in this section, that after all these great truths he's unpacked and this big warning he's about to go into, this verse reminds us, reminds us, that you can't be a Christian by yourself, in isolation. We actually need the church. And in fact, I think it's, it's, it's put here before this warning because I think one of the key markers of, of abandoning the faith is first to abandon the local church. You know, there is this lie going around today in our culture, and it's captured many Christians, and it's this, the lie that the local church is optional, that participating, serving, and being a part of the local congregation is optional. It's not necessary as a Christian. You hear people say comments like this, well, you know, church is just it's too political, so I don't involve myself in it. Forgetting the fact that, well, the church has always been too political in, in that sense, right? Look at the Corinthian church. They were fighting over, over their favorite preacher and they, were, they, they couldn't even come together for communion without, um, <laughs> without jealousy and all kinds of things happening. The church has always been a messy place, but that's not a discouragement away from meeting. It's not a reason not to meet. Or you hear people say something like this, something along these lines. Jesus is first and the, and the church is second. Or, or I don't need the church, I just need Jesus. Or, you know, I don't want to become churchy. It's more just about my individual relationship with Christ. And while some of these comments may be well intended, they're actually not that helpful. Why? Because each of these statements are pitting Christ against the church. And it's not biblical. You know the way the Bible talks about the church? It talks about the church being Christ's body. And whether we like it or not, Christ's body is expressed through the local church. And so do not pit Christ against his own body. We need to be 
involved in, participating in the local church. Or perhaps, and this is the most frustrating one that I hear, Christians say that they don't need a local church or to be consistently in one because they're a part of the global church with a capital C. But this is just as unhelpful. In fact, someone put it to me like this once and it stuck with me. To say that you love the church with a capital C and not be part of a local church is like saying that you love all people but no one in particular. Let me say that again. To say that you love the church, the global church with a capital C, and yet not be a part of a local church is like saying you love all people but no one in particular. It doesn't make sense. The church is essential. So maybe a good question to ask us before I ask about how we can spur one another on in love and good works is to ask how we can be more involved in church life. How, how we can begin to see the people in this church for what they really are, our, our family, our true family. And then we can ask ourselves the question, how can we, in this season, be spurring one another on in love and good works? Maybe the lockdown has begun to be an excuse for you to stop reaching out, to stop encouraging and challenging others. How can we change that? And even more so, as we prepare to regather, how can we be focused on loving one another well and not getting focused just on our own needs and our own desire to gather again? How can you be eager to meet together and to participate, even if it's not ideal, even if you don't agree with what the church has decided? Because whether we gather as 20 or 50 or 150, we can still live out this verse and encourage one another and spur one another on to love and good works. And so there we have it. Three encouragements around faith, hope and love. Now we don't have a lot of time left, but let's turn our attention to this often spoken about warning. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Quite a heavy passage, right? Now, I don't actually want to dwell here for too long, not because I want to avoid it, but because I think Mike did a great job of of the warning in chapter 6, and I think that gives us a lot of the context we need to discern this passage. But, But I want to make a couple of quick comments here. The first one is this. We need to keep in mind the type of sin that the writer of Hebrews has in mind here. When he says, if we continue in sin, what's he actually talking about? And this is where the context becomes really important, because if you remember back to last week, the text was all about how Christ 
sacrifice means there is no sacrifice for sins left. How, how God remembers our sins no more as believers. And so to take this passage and to think that it's talking about a born-again Christian, that if they sin too much, then they can lose their salvation, I think would be incorrect. And it wouldn't make sense. It's not like God forgives us and remembers our sin no more, well, until you sin too much. And then he remembers it all over again. It's not how it works. That would be wrong, that the sin has been paid for. And for that reason, I don't think we should look at this particular section in terms of Christians' habitual sin problems either. Those deeply ingrained sins that that some of us may be stuck in very deeply. I don't think that's what this passage has in mind either. Sure, there are other passages like in 1 John that that talk about the fact that if we're continuing in sin as believers and and there's no desire to repent, no desire to turn away from those things, that that could be an indicator that we're not Christians at all. Sure, but that's, again, not the emphasis of here in this passage. No, once again, just like chapter 6 and the other warnings in Hebrews, this passage has in mind the issue of a heart of unbelief that leads to a rejection of Christ as the only way of salvation. And you see that in the passage, right? Look at verse 26. It talks about there being no remaining sacrifice, which, of course, indicates a setting aside of Christ as that only sacrifice, as the only way. Verse 29 talks about having contempt or trampling underfoot the Son of God. Again, forceful language to show that there is a rejection going on here. This passage has in mind a person who may well have been in church for a season of their life, who who showed that at a point they might have accepted knowledge about the truth, but they've turned away. They've rejected Christ. And only judgment awaits them. But you might say, but, but doesn't verse 29 say that those people have been sanctified and what about verse 30 it says that God will judge his people if it if it's talking about non-christian then why does it say they're God's people well just quickly to deal with those things sanctify it's been used in a number of different ways throughout this letter and it actually just means to set apart sometimes it's spoken about Christians being set apart other times it's talking about the old covenant sacrificial system that set apart or sanctified the flesh it actually means to set apart and so I don't think it, it means that these people were genuine Christians it means that they've they've put themselves under the covenant they've come into the covenantal community in that sense they've set themselves apart but doesn't mean they were true Christians and then the second point about, about God judging his people, well, again, this is a quote from the Old Testament. And we know that one of the big themes of the New Testament is that there's true and, and false believers. This is referring to a judgment that God will bring that will distinguish between true and false believers. And again, keeping in context the Old Testament, the Israelites, not all who came out of Egypt, we read this in chapter 3, were believers, Some came out with them, but they didn't all believe in God as their salvation. The same thing is true today. Not everyone who proclaims they're a Christian really is, and only God will judge the true from the false. No, this passage is about a heart of unbelief leading to the rejection of Christ as the only way of salvation and adding to Christ and therefore a falling away from faith. However, in saying that, The warning in this passage is meant to be taken by all of us. 
It's not like the writer of Hebrews has one or two people in mind that he wants to read this warning. He wants us all to be aware of this warning, to be aware of our own hearts that there may be this kind of heart of unbelief in us. No one thinks they're going to reject Christ until they do. And so we must let this warning do its work and cause us to focus all the more on Christ. You see, if this passage causes some fear in you as a Christian... I actually don't think that's a bad thing. This is a scary reality, thinking that you could come to a place where there's only judgment coming. I actually think that means that the passage is doing its work. It's causing some heaviness. It's causing you to go, wow, I need to stay focused on Christ. I need to keep pursuing Christ. I need to keep doing those three things that this passage has already mentioned. Assuring myself of who Christ is, hoping in who he is, and encouraging one another to stand firm, to persevere. I think this passage has bigger red flags for people who just brush it off, who don't even really care, who are bored by this very topic. This passage should cause something within us, a good kind of fear to keep us focused on who Christ is and what he's done. All right, well, more could be said, but we'll leave it there. Why don't we keep moving and finish off this passage? Look at verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better and abiding possession. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for, if you, have, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So this passage really, in conclusion, summarizes the main point he's been getting at here. He calls them to, to recall and to remember the early days of their faith, how, how they, they actually stood strong in persecution. They, they, they helped those who were in need. And the reason they did this was because they remembered that Christ had given them a better and abiding possession, that he will give them what is promised. And so after this strong warning, he's, he's encouraging these believers once again to focus on the fact that there is a better inheritance, there is a better possession for us in Christ, and it will not fail. He wants them to take stock, to refocus, to not throw away their confidence, their confidence which is Christ himself. And then finally, verses 37 to 39, which really sets us up for heading into chapter 11. He challenges the church not to shrink back. And again, we should, we should see the word plays going on here that, that he's deliberately, um, after he's talked about drawing near, challenged them not to, to shrink back by turning to something else. But also notice here that he talks with a play on words, that he talks about Christ coming back without delay. In other words, Christ is coming again and he will not shrink back. There is a day coming, he will return, 
It will happen. The danger is us shrinking back from him. And so keep your faith in him, your confidence in him, your assurance in him. There is no other way. And he finishes with that encouragement to these Hebrew Christians that he's confident that they are people who have faith. They are people who won't shrink back, who will stay focused on Christ. And I think that's the way we end this church, to, to be encouraged to draw near to God. In all our weakness and our struggles, to draw near with full assurance that Christ is enough, that He is the only way of salvation and we don't need anything else, to be assured that He is the greater sacrifice. He's done the work. And let us not only draw near to God, but draw near to one another to encourage, to help one another, to stay focused on Christ, to persevere, to endure. Let this passage be an encouragement to you to draw near to God through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. There's a lot there, Lord, but we're so grateful for it. We're grateful for those three points that we spoke about earlier, Lord, that that we can have complete assurance in you, knowing that that you're sufficient even in our doubts and and even in our sin, Lord. It's amazing to think that, that that's why you came to forgive your people, so help us to draw near with our confidence that is centred upon who you are and not at all upon what we are. I pray, Lord, that you help us to keep our hope in a time of hopelessness. Help us to see what's draining our hope, to turn away from those things and to keep our hope centred upon you. And Lord, help us as a community to draw near to one another, to encourage one another, to love one another well and not to neglect meeting together as a local church, Lord, not to buy into the lie that's going around that that we don't need the local church, Lord. We know that it's essential. We know it's your body gathering. We know it helps us and protects us, Lord. And help us to take heed, Lord, to draw near to you, not not to shrink back, not to turn away, Lord, but to humbly seek you and to look to you for all that we need. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of his spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.